It's episode 26 of the Improv London podcast with this week's guest, Sarah Spencer. This ain't gonna be easy. Welcome to episode 26. I had a great time talking to Sarah and exploring the role of the director in improv, which is something that we haven't looked at on this podcast before. And we talk about Sarah's current project, Notflix. Sarah Spencer, welcome to the Improv London podcast. Yay! Yay. This is so fun. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I'm glad to have having fun already. Your poor listeners, obviously. <laughs> so, uh, we, we, uh, one approach to improv is to, and I'm not saying this is the only approach, obviously, is to establish the who, the what, yes. and the where. Yes. So, where are we? Oh my God, we're in hipster heaven. Do you know what? I, um, didn't, I didn't even believe these sort of places existed. No, 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 they don't. Because actually, <laughs> <laughs> next week this room is being turned into offices for tech geeks. But today we've got it. We're like the last people to use it practically. Um, and also we have to mention the most amazing lady, Natalie Harmon, who is letting us be here for nothing and letting us do improv here this evening for nothing because she's amazing. Hooray! Um, hooray! So Timber Yard, UK. Um, yeah, it's an amazing little black box space that nobody knows about. Shh, <laughs> don't tell her, don't tell her. But it's only here for... A... It's only here for another week and I'm booked in, so... <laughs> Sorry, but it's amazing. Yeah, so that's where we are. And we're in a little room and um, we're about to be interrupted with tea. That'd be so nice. it's all very civilised. <laughs> and we're about to do Chat. <laughs> That's the only kind of chat on this oh, podcast. It's the only sort of chat I have. Just walk away from other chats. <laughs> Where should we start? I don't know. What 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 would you like to start with? I've heard of this thing called Netflix. <laughs> who or what is oh, Netflix? Oh, what is Netflix? Netflix might be the most exciting original bit of musical improv you've ever seen. Wow! That's how I would describe it. Um, oh, his teeth. Oh, hello. Thank you. That looks amazing. English wow. breakfast and show lattes, right? Perfect. That'd be awesome. Lovely. Thank you very much. I'm missing a few things. You might think, how am I going to drink that tea? Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I hadn't even thought that far ahead. Um, I've just got to step ahead for you. Um, tea back, tea leaves. Brew for about five minutes, and then pull them back out. Good lord, this is amazing. Yes, so, it is. There's a little recipe behind it all. I'm going to bring a so that that'll be. When it, you, I mean, you understand how time works. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just pull the bag out and put it in there again. That's get amazing. You, uh, a cup of saucer and some water for the table. That'd be lovely. Thank you very much so indeed. Much. Wow. This, this is, place is so hipster. This is just amazing. You didn't get a cup. No. Well, I was, <laughs> still waiting for the I was tea wondering to if brew. I was going to have to drink it off the, uh, <laughs> the bit of wood uh, uh, wall. This defies definition. You've got a small milk bottle, it's on a slate. We've, we've got a timer to see the tea brew. I mean, it's it's genuinely the best looking tea I've ever seen. I mean, God, I, we love Timber Yard. It's amazing. Oh, I mean, I, um, I feel entirely, if I was going to ever take a picture of, of a tea, of a cup of tea, it should be this. And you should actually prop, prop your timer up oh, so yeah. that people can see just how uh, hippie hipster this is. Where should I put it? I'll just hold it there, shall I? Brilliant. How beautiful that is. Um, because, um, you know, uh, drinking tea is an integral part of this podcast. <laughs> yes. uh, and you should pop, so you actually will be able to drink it. Well, you know, I'm... Oh, uh... that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. 
get stuck in. I feel I feel really bad because I've I really interrupted your flow with No, my, that's fine. Uh, I can pick up exactly where I left off. So then while you're pouring. Go so the Lay Miz number yes. uh, is our one day more parody because actually what I love about that number in, in the, the musical Lay Miz is the fact that it's just a number of characters in isolated spotlights saying this is what I want. Ah, well right. what a dream for improv to have a number where you can stand up and say, This is what I want. Listen, fellow improvisers, this is what we're gonna connect our beat two to. So we have a lovely number because my singers are amazing singers. It was, sounds beautiful and it's uh, it spontaneously choreographed in the most amazing ways. <laughs> <laughs> and then we move into beat two, which is another set of paired scenes by the same um, pairs as we saw. But the point is now we explore and we heighten. So whatever game, whatever nugget of information was put into A, we now see this in different scenarios. So we would move forwards in time. We would see them in another place. If it's been work, maybe we'd see them at home. Maybe we'd see them doing a leisure activity. And at this point, we start to really tag in from the back line. So this is where we can really have fun mm. as an ensemble. And we would take it forwards and take it backwards and, and put the characters in other situations. So that those three paired scenes are really playful and right. fun. Yes. And what I haven't told you is every single scene will finish in a song. Brilliant. So we work with our musician, um, James, who's awesome. Um, and he is listening for the optimum point of emotional connection and then he'll batter a song in. Um, and so it goes on like that. And then we've got a third beat after another group game which we describe as the Mormon Hell number where our, our, whoever is, whoever's journey it's going on, they have like a sort of a dream Book of Mormon style about all the decisions they could have made or should have made. <laughs> and then beat three is, is very traditional. We're just tying up loose ends and we're making those connections. But I think the thing is we don't set out ever to be funny right. but it will always organically happen and I just say to my players you've just got to be real because actually unless we construct a base reality that's constructed on genuine reactions to one another and it's not about finding the funny then the funny will come mm. it absolutely will because it's about framing that first quirky unusual thing that comes along and then that gives us our hook but actually the worst shows and when I audition players the people that I think, oh God, I wouldn't know what to do with you as a player, are the ones that come along and it breaks the fourth wall and right. it's very knowing and yes. takes us out of the world. Actually with Netflix, what, what I always say to my team is, we've got to take from Showstoppers that wonderful emotional connection where you can just switch off and you can get absorbed in the world and you think that they've written it because mm. it's so beautiful mm. and immersive and wonderful and you're you're as engaged as you would if you'd seen a, a show by Sondheim. That's what we want, even though there will be funnies and we're using very tried and tested improv techniques going backwards and forwards, devices that could very easily take us out of the world we train twice a week so that we don't do that. Right. We're absolutely immersed in it. And our characters, even though they might be doing outlandish things, we can always justify them. Mm -hmm. There's there's some heart behind it. Um, we try not to go to crazy town in terms of the character's emotional connection to one another. Um, and we're not plotty. It's, it's relationship driven. Even though we might have a, a bizarre location, it's about the two people in that moment in time doing something together and where that takes us. God, I've talked for a long time. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. I'm sorry. No, no, that's very good. <laughs> um, I'm very much in favour of the uh, the episodes where uh, I can just ask a question. You're going to make a cake. How well, exciting yes. for you. We've got cake, yes. Okay, we've got brownies. Um, that's amazing. Mm. Um, 
And so yeah, so so that's not flicks. That's um that's the show. But it's it's it has been a labour of love. This show, I mean, I gave up my job for this. I've I've been a teacher for seventeen years of of improv in various schools and and institutions, and and then I sort of got sidetracked into directing shows for people. Um, but about two years ago, I thought I've just got to do this. This show is burning away inside hmm. of me, and and I've been doing this in rehearsal, but actually I've just got to commit to this properly. So I took a year of work. Yeah. Oh, that was, that, no, it was, it was the best thing that I could have done because actually the fear of not having an income and thinking, I've got to make some money. I've, yeah. I've got to do it. Yeah. And so we did it. We did, we did an, a big audition. We got the most amazing group of improvisers who are utterly committed to making this a success. And over the course of, yeah, it's been, it's coming up two years. We've refined, developed, rejected, uh, turned it on its head, experimented with different styles, and I think we're now closer than we ever have been. Yeah. Thank God, because we've got the Edinburgh Festival coming up, <laughs> but close, closer to wherever you know the, the place that I conceived it originally. I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned you rehearse twice a week. Yeah, we do. We do two, three-hour sessions. Wow, that's. I know. That's we do really, a lot, don't we? That's brilliant, but committed. <laughs> well, I think the thing is, um, it's one of those things we. I think. When you start something, it's you've got to. Well, certainly when I start something, I've, I've, I've got to make it what is in my head. I've, I've got to get it to the level that I know it can be. And actually, half of the battle was finding improvisers that were as committed to doing right. that. Yes. Um, and although a lot of my improvisers do play for other teams, um, Notflix is the show that they're yeah. they're absolutely focused on getting right. And we've had a lot of success. Weirdly, it seems to cross over from improv into the world of comedy as well. Um, just for practice, really, not even thinking we would get anywhere with it. We entered Funny Women and ended up in the semi-finals. First improv group ever mm. to do that. Um, and then um, the Laughing Horse New Act of the Year. We ended up quite far through the process. And people kept saying, well, what is that? Like, it's improv. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> you can go and see this. This is a style that, you know, most most comedy clubs don't, don't put on their stages. But actually, the audience loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. I can't remember what my point was, but anyway, um, but yeah, no, we are we are super committed to making it a, a big success, and and rehearsal is part of the process. And our our biggest thing in rehearsal is actually we we rarely rehearse the show itself. Uh. There are various techniques and and skills that I need my performers to be able to be competent with, so that when we do the show. Um, it's it's natural. So actually, those two rehearsals a week, only one of them would be with a pianist ah, learning song structure. Yeah. Um, and even then, of that three-hour session, that that might be one hour's worth. So mostly, it's take the music away and let's just just hone our skills. And um, and the book that changed my life was uh, Improvisation at the Speed of Life. TJ yes. and Dave. Yes. Oh my God, what yes. a book! And I always say to everybody, like, you have to read that. That embeds. Yes. But don't Everything. bother. Don't bother starting to underline <laughs> things because in the end you just pretty much go underline all of it. So yeah, right. exactly. Isn't it the most amazing book? It is really good. Yeah. The heat and the weight were two things that just changed how I perceived my show because I think as a director it's very tempting to pick players that are that are quick that are just they, they have that ability to, to crank out the funnies but actually that that's not what it's about it's about having players on stage that genuinely will look at each other will look deep into each other's eyes and not break that contact and just know and be able to read what it is their partner's giving them and actually that was the biggest step forwards in terms of my learning as a director and I say to my actors now don't step up with anything for you 
Step up with something for your partner. Step up. Don't know who you are. They don't know who you are. Just step up with an attitude towards them. Mm. And let's see what comes. And if your partner is doing that and you're doing that, straight away we'll have the status. We'll know how big the elephant in the room is. <laughs> we'll know what the intensity of the relationship is. But I don't ever want to see any of my actors stepping up pre-prepared. Right. Not with a gag, not with, not with anything. Let's just have that moment, that split second where we look at each other deep in the eyes and then the scene starts and genuinely we go from moment to moment and in rehearsals oh god I'm a tyrant I'm constantly stopping them and, and telling them to listen go back listen if you genuinely consider that every sentence is loaded with significance then you're going to find a game you're going to find that moment and the show is going to be the show that it wants to be not the show that you as as a team member wants it to be right and that's what we're always looking for that group mind the moment where you just see the team relax and they know where it's going because they've listened in the moment and they film and that's the biggest thing i think for improvisers listening i mean I, I, genuinely i know it sounds ridiculous but i mean you've been in classes as well it's so hard to actively listen mm. isn't it mm. I think it is anyway it's just yes. um, no, it, you think you're listening but actually you're not listening you're planning two moves ahead you've latched onto an idea that was said three sentences ago mm. and you think you've got it and actually just respond don't wait because then you've missed it yes yeah. yes um, so you mentioned in the one of the, well, the rehearsals you have um, your honing skills um, so what ex sort of exercises are you doing to hone these non-musical skills? Mm, yeah, well, I, again, it comes back to, to the intensity of the connection between the players. So um, in a typical rehearsal, we do an exercise that I love, um, where we stand in a circle. And this, <laughs> this is not rocket science. This is, this is just exercises that I've coached from other classes over the years. Um, and we hand an object. So, so the first player will define what the object is, a shoe, a, a bucket, whatever you want. But they hand it to the next player with some kind of, they endow it with some kind of quality, whether that's an emotion or a, a significant past for that object. So this is a forgetful shoe. This is a shoe that was used in the, the London riots, 2000 and whatever. Um, and they pass it on. But when you receive it from your player, yes, it's going to remain a shoe, but you must not pre-plan and you must listen in the moment to something that is genuinely inspired by that emotional quality right. that has been passed to you. And actually that is a beautiful exercise to watch. Watching each player look and listen and think, okay, forgetful shoe, where could I take forgetful? And seeing that as a starting off point. And actually once you've done five or six rounds of that and you stop the group and you say, look, organically where that has gone. Now if we'd pre-planned where that was going, we'd have had a show that was that was boring. We'd have had choices that were pedestrian, but actually look what happens when you let your imagination go with the thing, the gift, the wonderfulness that your partner's given you. And actually that's a great warm-up because it gets us working as an ensemble, but also it builds that element of trust that actually, do you know what? my partner's got the answers. It's not for me to make the choices because other people haven't got the skills that I have. It's about listening and as an ensemble, we make something beautiful. And then from there, we do an awful lot of lining up in two lines, we turn around, we turn back together, um, and as we turn, I tell the players to project an attitude towards the player opposite you. 
I say don't prepare who you are. You know nothing other than how you feel about that person. Don't make character choices, but you love them, loathe them. Um, there's something going on. And we turn and we look, and then I get my players just to read what they see, a cold reading of what they think their partner is feeling towards oh, them. Yeah. Um, and then from there we animate those scenes and we genuinely go line to line to line, listening, listening, responding, responding. Um, but then the difficulty with that, that we have to make sure that, that the cast members get, is not to get too introspective about things, not to get too analytical and paranoid, because we have to remember, ultimately, it's a show. And the audience needs to know the who, what, when, where. So that has to be established pretty quick. So a lot of our training is done to get that perfect balance between reading and being in the moment, but actually the awareness that we have to have these hooks narratively that we're going to connect to. Um, and although we're never prescriptive about the relationships, as a director, I like my actors to be aware of the choices that have been made in other scenes. So because we're creating a musical that's genuinely usually a hero's journey or there'll be somebody who has, has a problem that needs to be solved, we need to make sure that we're not all making similar choices. So if the first pairing have set up what looks to be a harmonious relationship, right. even though genuinely we react in the moment, the second pairing should know that maybe their relationship has got to be a bit fractured because we're trying to tie this up. So actually, and again, I know I know it is something that, that other groups don't necessarily use, the idea of having a director, somebody looking at the scene as it's taking place. Um, I genuinely think that's how we've managed to move forwards in the way that we have, because we are quite analytical about what works and what doesn't, and not flicks can be written down, I think, as a, as a manual almost. You could pick it up and you would know that's what the show is, because although it is entirely improvised, we never step up with any choices, we do know enough about what a show should look like that we have points that we're going to hit mm. along the way. Not in a contrived way, though. I'm not there. God, I talk enough. Oh, that's so good. Much, yeah. That's good. It's very much the uh, my because uh, I'm on every podcast, and I realise. Oh no, you're gonna rest this, this well, time. <laughs> also, I realise I've got a finite amount of things that I say, and I realise that quite often I think I'm sharing something new. And it's like, oh no, I said that before. Or sometimes I'm talking to someone in real life, and it's like, oh yeah, that's that's a good story, Stuart. But uh, episode eight. <laughs> I heard that on episode eight. Oh no, it's ruined your social life. Well, you know. Gotcha, well. thing. I mean, it has meant that I've wanted to record more conversations with mm. people, uh, even if I'm not planning on sharing them on the internet. And somehow, Gosh, I love it. somehow that seems weird. I mean, you know, somehow I get judged for that, and I don't know why. God, let's hope nobody gets murdered near where you live. You'll be prime suspect. You and your recording equipment, with your many <laughs> conversations logged. Well, I mean, I may be able to. Even that, you'll solve it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to work with the. Uh, Metropolitan <laughs> Police to because uh, I'm against murder. I mean that's a controversial stance, but I think murder is is wrong. Not good. No. No. Um, no. So uh, you know if there are any, I mean I imagine they've got it sus, but if they need a hand. Yes, you're there. Uh, um, in with between your recording devices. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, you say uh, in the in the show you've got certain points you want yeah, to hit. Yeah, points that we know we're going to hit. And the structure is a Harold structure, and you know the thing is, you either with improv you either love a structure, or you hate the structure, and, and you know you want everything to be organic. I just generally don't think the contents of my head and the actors' heads are as interesting as we probably think they are. So that's why I, you have to be, you have to filter. Like I could, 
I could write a novel, but I wouldn't expect anyone to publish it without a few edits. Right, yes. And that's why I expect with my show as well, that the first thing that comes out of your head might be wonderful and fascinating to us, but people are paying money to see this. So actually, <laughs> we've got to have a standard of quality yes. in there as well. So structure is helpful for us. Um, and I, I often say as well to my performers, and I think they hopefully they find this too, that having a framework in place actually allows you, I think, to be more creative. Because it's like, you've got the language, you understand where it's going to go. Um, and we know that every scene is going to end with a song, and we know to get there we need to emotionally heighten the relationship, and we know that in the first scene that, our pair, that we step up in in our pair, it's about finding that relationship, so we're not going to worry about plotting, it's about heat and weight and listening, then something beautiful will happen because of that. I think that's quite a freeing structure, I really do, because actually we know where we're going, so there's that not a safety net, but there's that sense that actually no one's going to let you fail. Mm. Everybody has has a language that's going to going to make the show a success. Um, and then through B two as well, the idea that heighten heighten what we've created, tag out, know that the players behind you are there to support you and are going to be listening for the where so that they can come in. And then if in doubt, we've got these these ever-reliable group resets, which you would have in Harold, where we heighten the game and express our wants, and, and we know that whatever happens, that's our chance just to take a breath. Hmm. And say, where are we? What have we got? Just before we go into the next few numbers. Um, so structure, I think, is freeing, but it has been a long time in the development. I mean, when I think about where the show was 18 months ago, God, it's embarrassing, actually, to think, of, to think about what we used to get up and do. But actually, do you know what, though? Because I've, I've taught for years and years and years. I taught improv to kids, actually, um, before I taught improv to adults. And I think that's why I became so hooked on structure, because you can take a kid, 12 years old, who's never improvised, but give them some language, give them the tools, give them the structure, and straight away you see this wonderful creative play. Um, that you just wouldn't see if you didn't have something for them to hook it on because certainly teenagers, and I work with teenagers a lot uh, probably like the worst group that you can improvise with <laughs> because they just don't want to share anything and everything's embarrassing and awful but actually if there are, if there's a frame in place, if there are rules we don't question, um, uh, we step up and we're going to look at our partner and we're going to connect and this is what's going to happen and if you do that it's going to be a success I think it's like teaching any subject. Give them some success criteria, give them a framework, it, it's gonna work. And actually I think that's been one of the most amazing parts of this journey because Waiting for the Call has, has a, a kind of youth, um, it's, it's always been young people that do it. Our current team is, is all under 30, I think just about. Um, but we also do a lot of work in schools as well. So there are as many really young people who are able to say, I've trained Wait at the Call, I've got Wait at the Call, I've got a little t-shirt, as there are adults as well. And, and the work that kids produce is as amazing sometimes as, as you know, the trained professional adults. Because play is just under the surface, isn't yes. it? It's, it's accessing that thing that as a 14 year old boy you don't want to say is there but actually say that that's acceptable and it's just so freeing i think that's why we love it as adults isn't it it's that sense of playfulness that you just can't have anywhere else and i think it would be harder to find without structure i think we would take less risks yes um but 
certainly when I started off, I said, yeah, just get out, let's sing some songs, let's see what happens. And actually, oh my God, it, I can only apologise if you saw a, <laughs> if you saw a Waiting the Core show two years ago, because I don't think you'd recognise it now. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I think there's something to be said for, I don't know, um, well, definitely having some sort of structure is very helpful. Um, you know, when I used to do creative writing, I used to do more creative writing, I used to go to various classes, mm. and it was much easier when you had parameters within which you had to work rather than yeah. just having a blank page and being able to do anything. So mm. that's, that's what I think, yeah, I teach a lot of drama in schools as well, and actually when you're creating a play with a kid you've got to teach them how to do a flashback a flash forward some narration because then they feel empowered yeah and i think it's the same certainly for me teaching improv various classes i've taught people want to succeed nobody wants because my god you feel vulnerable enough mm. standing up there with nothing to say and no script and and people are saying just listen but actually listening is the hardest thing to do in the whole world but actually knowing that there are, are things that you can do and things that are going to happen to push you through. And of course, I haven't said as well, we, we are absolutely long form. We don't stop. We don't come off stage. We are just bam, 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 all the way through. I, I, I think I would feel like a terrible person if I made my actors just go 40 minutes without stopping with nothing. So, <laughs> anyway. anyway. But I, I, I totally understand that that is potentially like not, not what other people want to do. And I've seen some, some great, completely structuralist stuff. I'm just a huge control freak. Fair enough. <laughs> well, as long as you understand your nature mm. and that the people totally, and the people totally. in your company are, you know, accepting it. Absolutely, like my therapy. Everyone understands where they are. Brilliant, because <laughs> it's uh, it's always a good moment in this um, podcast where we mention improv as therapy. That comes up quite a lot. Oh God, tell me about it. I do, it's, it just fascinates me. It really does, because I think it is probably the scariest, most exposing thing that anyone could do, and it. And I, I don't know anything about, you know, the, the people that audition for me personally when they audition. And it never fails to amaze me the amount of people that really genuinely suffer with anxiety and, and who genuinely are using this as the most amazing form of therapy. And I just think, you must be the bravest people <laughs> in the world. Because I'm pretty self-confident. I, I couldn't, like, half the time I think, I can't do it. <laughs> but it is, but that's it, it's play, isn't it? It's about going back... It's about going back to, to being 10 years old and let's see what happens if and yes and 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 all those wonderful things. Yeah. Um, cool. So you think, you describe yourself as a director. Mm. How does that differ from being a coach or is it just another... Mm, I think it's both because I'm a coach in a rehearsal sense as well. So in the rehearsals, like I said, we have two a week. I would, I would coach for at least the first hour and a half. So I would side coach. So I would step in and I'd, I'd, I'd give them a, a technique that we're gonna be working on today, um, whether that's cold reading scenes or whether it's um, endowing our partner with something or whether it's heightening. Um, so at least for the first hour and a half, we would be working on, on, on technique. And as a coach, I would be standing outside and commenting on what they're doing and, and giving tips. Um, but then the second half of the rehearsal, and this is where I think being a director differs, we would then put the focus on the show and skills specifically we need to make the show a success. So for example, last week we were working on the ideation at the beginning, and actually we know what an ideation is, it's coming up with ideas and sort of free-forming around what the audience have suggested. Now as a coach, if I've got that hat on, it's about 
genuinely bouncing off of ideas and what have we come up with as a director it's about standing outside and saying actually let, let's make a nice stage grouping here let's think about who's going to say it let's think about where we move from here because i think we never as as a show want to have a sense that it's it's entirely free form i would want my audience within the first few seconds to know they can feel safe with this group of people and so therefore our opening scenes are blocked so i will set them and you're going to step forwards here and actually in this group number two people are going to step up on the left followed by two people on the right um so i would say being a director is just being able to step outside and say okay let's let's look at what we're creating let's think about this as if it were a piece of theater that yes. we have the script for and this is the transition that we're going to make here and and yeah so i think it's about being able to step aside and think, oh god, that was beautiful improv and that was a wonderful moment. My director's hat says that took you 20 seconds to even say a word. You can't do that on right. stage, get up. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's that lovely organic exploration. But actually when we're in the second half of the rehearsal and we're doing the show, it's about, well, let's, what essence of that can we take to make it friendly to mm. our audience? And it's, it's sometimes a difficult, a difficult thing because, like all the work that we do on, on genuinely exploring relationships, with my coach's hat on, you see beautiful organic stuff. But my show would be <laughs> two hours long if we did that. <laughs> so, as a director, it's about taking what made that good, and in the nicest possible way, saying, "God, I know you're brilliant at that, but we can't do that. We're going to do that. Right. But you understand the technique, hmm. and we can therefore use it going forward." So yeah, so it's, I think it's about being detached. And I think actually having a director is hugely important. I've got another girl who's amazing, Penilla Holland, who coaches for me when I'm not there. Um, but she never directs because actually it is good to have that hierarchy, one voice saying actually, this is not flicks and this is what it looks like. Um, because otherwise we can get a bit self-indulgent and stuff that we think is great in rehearsal wouldn't necessarily translate on stage for the audience. Um, and as discussed earlier, I am a huge control freak, so if it's got to be someone, it's going to be me. Um, so yeah, so, so I think coaching is different. Coaching is holistically what I think improv should be. Mm. Directing is what the audience are going to want to see. So right, that's different, a really interesting distinction. Mm. And I mean, I entirely agree about making the audience feel that they can trust the company, because mm. there's nothing worse than having the audience worried about the performance. Oh God, isn't it awful, yeah. But you specifically say who's going to step forward at what point never. in the fancy? No, oh, no, 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 we would never do that. What's interesting though, the, the, and the cast is ever-changing, we always play with six players, although I think tonight we're playing with five, um, but generally it would be a team of six, we know it's paired scenes. As an ensemble, they get a feel for what they like to do. And they also, I suppose you always find a scene buddy that you quite enjoy working with. So I, I guess just organically, if somebody steps up and you like working with them, you jump forwards to do it. But we never prescribe. And actually that's, that's one of the things that we've looked for. And one of the things I think we've actually got now is an ensemble where we just love playing. So anybody could step up and, and you'd... Yeah, you'd, you'd want to do a scene with them. And that, that's really hard to find. <laughs> yes, because inevitably in any group there's always that one person Some we think. Some old yeah. Oh, I don't know. Well, it's about feeling safe, isn't yes. it? And just knowing that, you know, you're not going to get thrown under the bus. Yes. In the yes. nicest possible way. Or yes. just used as the straight man for somebody who's having a really good time getting all the laughs. I don't, actually, no, I don't mind the latter case. I don't mind playing the straight person. But it's the when someone 
um, sacrifices the reality of the oh, scene exactly. for a laugh. And it's like, well, that's fine, you got your laugh, but... No, we ban it. Oh, just tell them off. I don't like anything too knowing or too cynical. <laughs> because we're doing a musical, so the whole point is, like, it's ridiculous. People are singing. It is totally ridiculous. So if we don't have a reality that you as performers are utterly invested in with your whole heart, even if you're, you're employed as something ridiculous and, and you're going on a journey to do something ridiculous, if you are emotionally invested and there's not a hint of cynicism, yes. the audience will go with it. Yes. And I think cynicism is, is the worst. You've got to feel that you can step up and whatever you give your partner, they hold it in their hands like a little gift. Yes. And they don't throw it to one side and plough on with something else. And performers who can genuinely do that are the rarest thing. Where they can, you can step up and they make you wonderful, and therefore you make them wonderful back. And God, I oh, I need more of them. I've got six, six wonderful players that are just like that. But oh wow, when you find them, you're just like yes, yes, you're amazing. So um, what I'd like to do is to kind of explore um, some of the less glamorous sides of being a director, mm -hmm. because. Um, in the way I look at it, the coaching is probably the fun. Oh, it's, I mean, it's lovely. Not, it's, not, it's not hard work, mm -hmm. but it is the kind of, it's the fun sort of thing. We're part of the team when you're doing that. Yeah. You're one of them. Yeah. But there's, there's presumably more to running yeah. a musical group. It's hard gonna, work. Give me your tips and tricks for doing that successfully. Well. Or even just the things that you need to think about when you're doing that kind of role just to keep the whole thing on the road. I think, I think actually you hit on something that it's, the nature of improv is it's really exposing, isn't it? And actually, the problem that I find being coach and director is is being able to, to, to keep that sense of detachment from the team because when you're playing with an ensemble and, you know, at full capacity, we've got a lot of people in waiting for the call. Um, if, if I ended up the amount of people that have come through the doors and are still on the books, we've probably got about 30 people who are part of the company. Um, but there does come a time, and I think this is the difficult bit, where you have to cast a show. And actually, you can have players that you absolutely adore working with and who are your friends and you've seen them blossom, but for them, actually, improv is more about how, how they develop as people and, and it's something very different from people that want to do it as performers mm. and get up and do this and, and make money from, from doing that. And actually, as a director, the most heartbreaking thing is to have to say to those players who are just doing it for the love of it, but are never going to be the best, most you know, outstanding players in the world, but just love it. Having to say as a director, do you know what? Actually, these guys are going to do the show, but you're still valued. You absolutely yeah. are. And so that's that's been the biggest learning curve: having to have that detachment yeah. and say you are all amazing because you're all on your own journeys and that's fabulous and that is what Waiting for the Call is about. It's inclusive and it's wonderful, but actually when I'm Sarah the director, it's KHU6. It has to be. Yeah. Because going forwards, this is what's going to get us the reviews. This is what's going to get us... Um, that is what got us the Gilded Balloon this summer because, you know, that that's what the public expect is being able to maintain a standard. Um, also, and I guess people find this the whole time, it's it's consistency that you find a team that you absolutely love and then because they are brilliant players, they're playing for ten other teams, yeah, yes. they get, you know, a lot of our guys do, do West End shows, so they yeah. get those and you think, oh, good Lord, <laughs> you've got to start again. Yes. And then it's about training, having people in the wings that can come through the ranks and, and just take those places. 
but also I'm I'm producer so I, I fundraise I put the money in I fund the group through corporate workshops which thankfully pay pretty well but it's I do the PR as well it's it's all of those things that I'm sure when you reach um, a level where a management company takes you on they, they deal with that for you but it's waking up and going holy crap I think I've probably got to raise seven grand before August and yeah. then doing it and how because yes. no one else is going to do it so wow. because it's my company and because I direct it um, the responsibility is mine and I was set really big targets and I expect my actors to maintain that kind of level of commitment so I, I therefore have to put the commitment in myself so I'll frequently do a workshop during the day go and teach a class with some kids come home and then I'll start the publicity for mm. waiting for the call and, and it's it's never ending but it's my baby mm -hmm. and if you don't do it well you don't know what would have happened do you yes. so you have to but it's yeah it's, it's not something that you can detach from <clears throat> and I think it's the journey has been interesting from something that started with me teaching young people into me knowing that there was a show in there and then actually that that raises the stakes mm. as soon as you put yourself out there actually you've got to maintain it and you've got a responsibility to your audience and the people that follow you and the people that enjoy your work to not just maintain it but to exceed their expectations um i love it but yeah. then yeah <laughs> that's good i'm very glad it would be awful if you didn't yeah god honestly <laughs> i made some wrong choices there <laughs> so you mentioned uh doing corporate mm. work how do you how do you go about getting corporate work god now i, I tell you what if somebody out there wants to write a book about how you get corporate work, um, how do you get corporate work? The awful, dreadful catch-22 is you get corporate work by spending a lot of money promoting yourself as people who can do really good corporate work. So right. you create a multitude of beautiful flyers which cost you a fortune and you you trawl the internet to find HR people's names and once you get that one and it's always it you have to know somebody you have yeah. to get that foot in the door but once you've got it and you can do a big organization then you exploit that for all it's worth yeah. you tout around their yeah their competitors but um uh, oh, we've got, we're off to Birmingham next week to do one they are they're great and actually I know is it's is a little soul destroying for people who've been doing it for years. I still love it. It's worse than teaching children. Like really? Kids, at least they're playful with 30 adults in a room looking at you, looking at their watches, thinking this, I will never use this in my life. <laughs> um, yeah, it can be, it can be a little bit scary, but we do um, communication workshops. So right. we use, we teach the improvisational mindset right. to business people. So <laughs> this is why it's good to be an improviser because you look at the group and you think right you're, you're not going to go for this and you tailor it right. and I always bring a musician with me as well oh, so wow. we do a lot of voice exercises and yes. yeah I, what never fails to amaze me is there are a lot of people in the corporate world making a lot of money who can't speak really? who do, can't use their voices who get super nervous so actually the one thing I can guarantee if anyone wants to put me when we do a corporate <laughs> is by the end of it we will have taught you to relax to stand better to make decisions in the moment and actually I still quite enjoy that I'm such an improv gig I just I just love the idea that somebody's paying me money to do this <laughs> infrequently but they are <laughs> well, I imagine there's a difference between doing that sort of communications workshop and or and performing at the Christmas due or something like that because oh that must god, be that must be yeah well we haven't done any of those yet thank god they're, 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 I'm sure they would be sold to but 
do you know what? It's how lucky are we that we're able to make a living doing yes. improv? It's just. It's nuts. I pinch myself every day because when, <laughs> when I was little, the idea of, of actually being able to perform for a living was something that you just think, I won't be able to do that. But actually, like, here I am, almost 40, still doing it. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing. Yes, it is, yes. So, how did you discover improv? Uh, going back years. Um, I've always been involved in comedy, but not improv comedies. When I left university, um, I did cabaret in the years before cabaret was hipster. Wow. Oh god. And that would well, that picks up on what you said about people, you know, at their Christmas party eating their pies and chips <laughs> while you're in the corner performing. Um, so when you say cabaret, what do you mean? I used to do a, a sort of burlesque act, which was and a bear in mind, Dita Von Tees and people hadn't hadn't made it cool. So this was <laughs> so uncool, I was so ahead of my time. Um, <laughs> So we um, worked at, oh, I don't know if anyone even remember this, there used to be a musical in the West End called Saucy Jack and the Space Vixens and it transferred, <laughs> it's awful isn't it, transferred <laughs> to a bar on Crucifix Lane where it became Saucy Jack's Cabaret Bar um, and for a year me and a selection of other, I think I was one of the only women, um, comedians did the warm up and it would genuinely be that. It would be from six o'clock until the show started at nine. We would just do sketches. And I, we were doing it for ourselves because <laughs> nobody was paying any attention. But some amazing people did it. Um, Jim Howick, who's now on Horrible Histories, did it. Um, Matt Holness, who won the Perrier, he did it as well. So we were a little ensemble, the most disparate group of people. And of course, those two went on and, and did fantastic things. I thought, I can't do this, this is so <laughs> destroying. So I went to drama school at that point um, and then did drama and education at Central, which I don't think even exists anymore, um, and then went taught in the inner city for 10 years and loved it, absolutely loved it. But that, weirdly, is when I got back into improv. Right. Because actually I was working with kids who were English as an additional language and SEN and actually not having a script was the most liberating thing and that's where I first developed the idea of having structure and having rules so actually let's do this let's play let's get up let's work together and then I sort of got back into it myself and then worked around the country in, in lots of other schools and then the turning point for me was going to Edinburgh and seeing Baby Wants Candy for the first time <laughs> and going do you know I could put songs in this I think I could do it and I was working at quite a good public school at the time they had an amazing music department with musicians just sitting around not doing anything so I was like does anyone play the piano can we have a go at this and I teamed up with a wonderful guy called um, Will Hethcote who, who was genuinely one of the reasons that we got this off the ground in the first place and we experimented with how you structure a song and how we would teach that to kids and I, and I, I know I keep saying it but genuinely the fact that we were able to teach it to children yes. in a very clear way I think has meant that we have a translatable easy structure that we can teach to adults verse verse chorus bridge chorus that kind of thing that we know works um so so yeah so I guess I'll answer your question after almost 17 years of thinking oh my god all my contemporaries that I started off with are still in the business and still doing it I thought I've got to do it I've just this this is the thing this is what we can do as a company that nobody else is doing and I know there are a lot of musical improv groups out there all of whom are wonderful but I do believe that Netflix kind of has a life of its own and 
we're either going to get sued by Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, they haven't noticed one of the two. And it'll all stop dead. But, but we've got a good brand. <laughs> we've got a really good brand. So yeah, that was, that's a rambling way of answering your question. That was very good. We did a festival at Christmas. Actually, I forgot to mention this. Um, Penilla, the wonderful Penilla Holland, and I did um, a festival called Tiny Women Brains, a feminist comedy festival. We got all the lovely people that we love working with. And we did a weekend of workshops and, and fabulous stuff. Um, and because we're cheeky and because we like to write to everybody, we wrote to Karen Corrin at the Gilded Balloon. And I, I wrote her a very long email. And I said, <laughs> I just, I want to produce comedy. Um, you're amazing. Just will you come and speak? And she actually couldn't. But she said, that was a good email. How would you fancy the Gilded Balloon? Wow. And I was like, oh, yes, please. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, yes, please. So hence we're doing four weeks at the Wee Room. Wow. Um, and oh, do you know what? I'm just I'm so looking forward to it because we've done Edinburgh for the past two years, but we've done smaller venues, and we've always sold very well. But actually, there's there's a lovely sense of validation about doing one of yes. the big four. And Gilded Balloon have been awesome. They look after you beautifully, and I feel like there's a lovely cosy pair of arms <laughs> who are not going to let us fail, and everybody is wonderful. So. I just think, yeah, sometimes being a bit cheeky really pays off, doesn't well, it? Well, I think uh, writing someone an email and inviting them to, that's not really I, cheeky, <laughs> this, is it? That's just, well, you know, invite them to speak, I don't know. I just, I, well, oh, yeah, yeah, I suppose, well, yeah, depends what you mean by and cheeky. And no money, yeah. Well, she was wonderful. Yes. No, yeah. I, no, I, I see what you mean by, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, no. No, I write, I write a lot of emails and sometimes they pay off. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so how do you cope with Edinburgh? How do you stay sane when you're... Uh, doing a run I, I, well I think you just have to expect to be very ill by the end of the day I just <laughs> accept that and just try and stave it off for as long as you possibly can I think the, the most difficult thing is because as we said earlier we're really regular rehearsals we're rehearsalers we do a lot of rehearsal and actually the weird thing for us in Edinburgh is not being able to do that so not having access to the venue we like to be in the space we like to prepare we like to get in the zone um, and actually only having a very small living room to do a little bit of work in is, mm. is kind of odd for us. Um, and then the relentlessness of doing other people's shows and cabaret slots and comedy slots, you just are never off. And actually a lot of my cast have got their own comedy shows as well. Mm. So I think actually this year is going to be, it's going to be a real test of, of stamina. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're all so proud of the show. Yeah. We absolutely are. That It's a pleasure to promote it. It really is. So I know from that perspective, we're going to have a great Edinburgh. We really are because we've got a product that we're super, super proud of. But I mean, honestly, I've never, <laughs> I've never been more tired in my life <laughs> in that final week of Edinburgh. <laughs> and you just get, you're like in a little fog, aren't you? The, the awful kind of, how am I getting through this? And also because my poor actors have to sing yes. as well. And it's just so tough. So if they go out and get absolutely obliterated it's it's not going to be helpful for them right. and we're not taking understudies so it's it's that six yes. all the way through so they've got to be super careful we're just going to have to be good and well behaved and i hope they're listening to this because <laughs> <laughs> if you were in the show we're in trouble <laughs> I imagine that you're going to need to tell them that face to face rather than relying oh, on. God, just yeah, I'll, I'll go collect them from various bars. Really? <laughs> no, 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 I won't. I won't do that. Don't worry. Mm. <laughs> I, w I wouldn't take the risk if I were you, no, exactly. not Flix performer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but no, honestly, we are so looking forward to it, and um, I, I am. 
sure that if you saw Netflix this time last year, you're going to see a very different incarnation of the show because we've done a lot of work, a lot of work, and I think it's as as good as it has, you know, has ever been. Brilliant. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> so I mean, is it is it just working hard that you think brings this sort of success? Do you think every improv group should rehearse twice a week? I think it, I think it utterly depends why you're doing it. And again, I think absolutely, like there is so so much to be gained if you're just doing it because you love it, because it's the most wonderful, holistic, organic process that just makes you feel better, and because it feeds your soul and it's wonderful. And actually, like I'm sure that most improv groups, including Way Too the Call, do it because of that. Um, I think I just have this drive to make it as recognised as stand-up comedy because right. I know that the circuit of improvisers that, that I see and I work with are the most amazing improvisers and actually it's, it's this little punk art form that's operating on its own that people just don't really go and see and I just I honestly think the UK scene is going to explode soon you can just feel it um, and you just get a sense that soon there are going to be groups that are leading the way and for me, and I think I think I am a naturally ambitious person, I couldn't sit back and not be one of those groups. Right. And especially being female as well, I, I want to be one of the big female improv pioneers. I want to be Shana Halpin. I want to be, <laughs> I want to have my venue. And I think if you have that drive, genuinely, that relentless drive that, I mean, I, yeah, you'll put the money in, you'll put the hours in, you will be absolutely committed to getting the best team that you can, then I'd, I'd say anyone can, but I think the journey along the way is a hard journey where you have to make decisions that you might not want to make necessarily with regards to your cast. Um, you have to be prepared to put in to get back out, whether that be financially or in terms of your time. Um, but that was the commitment that I wanted to make. So I'd say everyone can, but whether anyone would want to. <laughs> you have to be mental. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so what would you like to see either in the future, either for yourself as a director or for the improv scene in general in the future, what would you like to see happen? You can answer either or both of those. Oh, okay. Well, I, I look at the American scene and I look at it, it, it because actually the American scene is so wonderful because actually, like like the, the, the world of, of stand-up comedy over there, improv leads to things. People come and see improv because it's part of, it's part of a creative world that people understand. People like to see improv. And I think, I feel sad actually that in the UK that that's, only just starting now people are only just making active decisions that oh, I could go and see some improv whereas you know to go to the comedy store would, would be like a natural decision improv has never had that kind of same same worth and I would love to see it going in that direction where people are prepared to take risks on the sort of things that they'll come and see but similarly I think therefore that means that the UK scene has to be we have to we have to maintain high standards I think and actually it's about 
we direct ourselves to create the show that we know that people are going to come and see and enjoy and I feel a responsibility there to produce the best show that I can so that mm. an audience member will never go out of my show and say well that's it I hate improv I'm mm. never going to go and see any again so I think we have to be a little bit self-filtering yes. in the nicest possible way and say you know as performers, we have a responsibility that if we're inviting people, we're charging people, we have to maintain a, a product that is quality. Um, I would, I'd absolutely love to set up my own UCB-style venue. In fact, that is where this is going. I want a venue. I want four rooms. I want a stage. I want, I want to be the one giving the the rooms to companies to rehearse and and. I don't see the difference between improv comedy, sketch comedy and stand-up comedy. I would like to have a venue where everything can be integrated into one show. And in fact, the show that we're doing tonight, our, our not-flick shows are always um, supported by other acts and we will always have a stand-up comedian and a sketch group as oh, well right. because we try and fuse those those worlds. Brilliant. So I think that's where I would most like to see it going. I'd like to see that fusion where actually we're not this little thing on the side. Hmm. We're as valid and as recognised as, as something that's worth seeing. Mm. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think I, I agree about this, having higher standards, but is that not harder to achieve than, you know, things like sketch or oh, stand-up? so hard. How, 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 do you, how do you do it? Yeah. Well, we do it through structure. Right. That's how I know that I'm going to guarantee a similar format in terms of where my actors are going to go with it. Obviously the content is always different and, and I absolutely, I, I guarantee that if you see three Netflix shows not one of them will be the same. Like They're all going to be different. But like I said earlier, I, I never trust that what's happening in my head and my actor's head is going to be worth listening to. Um, so I don't know how you do it. And do you know what? Genuinely, maybe Maybe that doesn't matter. If, if genuinely people are happy to go and see people just genuinely being free and creative, that is as wonderful, that genuinely is. But certainly for my group, to push us forwards to the next level, we can't have off shows. Yeah. We just can't do it. So in the same way that we might rewrite a sketch seven times, I might refine my structure seven times uh. until it's absolutely perfect. But no, I, I genuinely don't know how you do that, and I think I think that probably is the reason why a multitude of people have seen improv and said, oh God, I'm never coming back again. Yeah. So it's it's so hard. But then if that's not why you do it, then who the hell cares? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I think that's it. <laughs> is it? That was fun. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. This felt a bit like therapy. It's brilliant. I'm glad this was... This sounded like therapy. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, listeners. Sorry, and I didn't eat my cake either. No, have your cake. Thanks. That is an amazing cake. It is an amazing cake. Did you enjoy it? Much. Yes, I'm still enjoying it. Can we say, um, can we give Natalie Harmon a big shout out? Of course who's we can. the most amazing manager of Timbiard. Yes. Who's wonderful. I don't think she made the cakes, but she gave <laughs> us this room. So, no. Natalie, you're a legend. This Thank is you. the most. Um, this is the most glamorous and indeed hip place I've recorded. I know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And hopefully <laughs> everybody else you record with afterwards will have to maintain these standards. Well, I have to say that uh, <laughs> you have set a high standard yeah. for, um, no one's always bought me cake before. That's, good, uh, good. I mean, uh, this is to be encouraged. Uh, Aww, thank you so much, that was really fun. Thank you. Really fun. Brilliant. I made this. That's improv. <laughs> That's improv.